0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: A lot of the stuff that we got to do in that movie has already come to fruition. The smart mirror, you know, there's plenty of mirrors now for health and fitness market and, and other applications. Same thing with the smart table that he was using. You know, the holograms, I've seen a lot of different uh, companies attempt to do some holographic stuff. Of course, nothing quite looks the same as Jarvis. Um, But just, you know, I'm talking to you through these AirPods and and I'm thinking about the Avengers when they all have like something in their ear that they're communicating with each other on. The age old story of science fiction, inspiring science fact, you know, that used to be so true with books, you know, inspiring inventors, whether it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Uh, by jules verne inspiring you know the submarine and hg wells war of the worlds inspiring the inventor of the rocket ship you know now is really film film and, and games and just you know entertainment in general has uh has kind of filled in a lot of that uh place for inspiration you know so many of the technology companies that we meet with and we visit and we talk to We've literally heard it uh, dozens of times that our work inspires them. That that you know they they watch these movies, they get ideas, they uh, they look up to it.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Jeremy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: It is my pleasure to have you here. So you wrote in and told me a bit about your story. And when I read the phrase, you know, doing title sequences for Marvel movies, I was like, hell yes, because I think we were in the middle of actually going through the Marvel series. Uh, My roommates and I, when I think we got your guest and I was like, I told my roommates like, hell yes, you should talk to this guy. And I was like, yeah, I think so too. Uh, But before we get into all of that, uh, I wanted to start asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you made throughout your life and your career?
1: Oh, well, wow. It's a great question. So I grew up, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, in Coney Island, um, and my parents are both very, very creative. Um, they both went to art school. They, they met actually at Pratt, which is a great art school in Brooklyn. Um, and my father was a high school art teacher uh, in Coney Island for about 40 years. Um, he taught art, uh, which included drawing and painting and, and every manner of, of studio art for high schoolers. My mom... She dabbled in interior design. She dabbled in some some fashion stuff. She was also a great calligrapher. So growing up, she would always take these little freelance gigs doing calligraphy uh, for invitations for different, you know, weddings or bar mitzvahs or whatever. So that actually uh gave me a, a great love of typography from a from a young age. But it was my dad who used to um let me sort of tag along uh to sit in on his classes. Uh, You know, he would take his high schoolers on field trips to like the Bronx Zoo or Central Park and just to draw. And I would often go with him uh, and his students to do that. Um, He also taught uh, a Saturday morning workshop at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan uh, in the early 80s that I used to go to as well. It was for high schoolers, but I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And I would sit in on his drawing classes and I was just exposed to much more advanced, you know, drawing techniques like perspective and and drawing figures at a very young age, so it really uh it really shaped my my love of art and I was always like the class artist in school. But there was an interesting thing at the Saturday morning workshops that he did, there was another class right next door to his that was teaching animation. And you know, back in the early 80s animation meant light tables and uh, you know, drawing one frame at a time on uh, on on Frames and cells. And I actually sat in on that class uh, just as much as my father's. And it led me to draw some animated cartoons at a very young age. And I just have stacks and stacks of these drawings, uh, you know, kind of frame by frame drawings of these cartoon characters that I created. Um, I filmed some of them, my dad back then, but I still have a lot that were kind of just never filmed and put into motion. But that was a really interesting, um, I guess, pivotal moment for me because it, it opened up my eyes to you know, movies and, and moving pictures and flip books and how to bring uh, uh, characters to life. Um, I also loved comic books growing up. I was a fanatic about Marvel Comics um, growing up in the, in the late 70s. The best show on TV, uh, and I'd argue the best show of all time, was The Incredible Hulk with uh, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno's live action uh, interpretation of the Hulk uh, on every Friday night, and I uh, I just was obsessed with that show, and it was probably my gateway drug into uh, Marvel comics because I then started collecting everything Hulk related, and uh, of course that was the comic, and then it was Hulk magazines and Hulk posters and all kinds of Hulk memorabilia, and then that um, led me into collecting a lot of other characters within the Marvel universe. So all these things were kind of part of my uh, my early childhood. And obviously, uh, uh, definitely shaped who I became uh, later on in
3: life. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves
2: Yeah. You know, you're one of the rare people here who I think happens to have grown up with creative parents. And I wonder with parents like the ones you had, what is the the narrative about careers, uh, particularly creative careers? Because I think for so many people that have been guests on this show, they're basically the rebel or the black sheep of the family who decided Mm -hmm. to go do something creative when they're surrounded by non creatives. And that's me. Mm -hmm. Like I always jokingly say, I'm, you know, God made a sorting error by giving me to my family. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, the the I think the um the influence that my father had uh as an art teacher was to not be an art teacher uh in hmm. in a way. Um you know, he almost dissuaded me from from pursuing that. Um he loved it, he was very passionate about it, he was great at it, but he also he also always wished that he he accomplished more and you know i used to tell him how proud i was of him and everything that he'd, he'd done but you know he he never was a great financial success and he never had any commercial success as an artist um and i always you know sensed this uh this regret uh from him um you know we talked about it a lot you know as i was growing up so you know when i was a kid uh and computers weren't a thing at all back then you know it, it, it wasn't even, you know, part of the conversation. This is, again, th- 35 years ago. Um, as a as a as a lover of drawing and art, I, you know, was always asked, uh, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And, you know, uh, I said, "I want to draw. I want to do something with art." And most people would tell me, "Well, you either become an art teacher or uh, you become an architect." And. I definitely didn't want to be an art teacher, like i said i uh, you know I kind of watched my father you know through throughout my life wish that he had tried to do something more than than that um so that sort of led me into this path of pursuing architecture as a career um and that then led me to when I was applying to colleges apply to colleges that specialized in architecture now throughout my my high school years. I got very much involved in computers. Computers were finally, you know, a thing. And I got my first Mac at, at, at 13. I used all my bar mitzvah money to buy a, a Macintosh Plus in 1986 um, against my parents' wishes who wanted me to save the money for college. I put it all <laughs> on this Mac and this, you know, dot matrix printer. And I said, I want to learn, you know, Mac Paint and Mac Draw and PageMaker and all these desktop publishing programs that no one's probably heard of today, but were very much a thing back then. Um, and I loved it. I just, I, I was so immersed in it. I loved doing everything on that computer and every, you know, school paper I did on that computer. And I started doing flyers for the school, high school and junior high school. Um, and then I started doing like a school magazine in high school on the computer and really got into, you know, layout and, and type and and really graphic design uh, throughout throughout my high school years. However, you know, I still had this, you know, path that was kind of set for me early on of architecture. So I, you know, I never really veered from that path and, and, and it guided me to, to apply to, you know, some of the best architecture schools in the country, like Cornell and Carnegie Mellon and Rice and several others. And I, I was accepted at all of them. And I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, They just gave me an unbelievable scholarship that I pretty much couldn't refuse. Um, but when I got there, uh, as an architecture student and anyone who who knows about architecture schools or who studied architecture knows just how intense it really is. It's always a five-year program. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's, it's the kind of place where if you're not a hundred percent, you don't belong there. It's a hundred percent or nothing. Like you have yeah. to be that committed. You're living in your, in your studio, you're at your uh, desk, you know, 24 seven or in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really, really intense. And I recognized from pretty much week one of architecture school that, uh, there was still a lot of uncertainty and doubt I had about making this my life. And as the weeks went on in that, in that first year of my freshman year, I just, um, I just was, was really filled with doubt. And I started to question my choices. And as as I guess, as fortunately, uh, Carnegie Mellon also had an amazing graphic design program. And I started considering that maybe that was the more appropriate place for me. Um, and I eventually decided I am going to, uh, to make the switch. I am going to try to transfer into the graphic design program. So I actually had to reapply, uh, to that college of fine arts graphic design program. I had a you know, submit a portfolio, do an application, do the interviews, the whole thing. Um, And then I was accepted, but I was accepted as a, as a first year student, as a freshman. So I spent my first year of Carnegie Mellon as an architecture student. I, I, I finished it out. uh, But I also piled on a ton of electives and other uh, areas like business classes and history and psychology and things like that, art history. Um, But I came back in my second year as a freshman again, in a uh, you know classroom filled with recent high school graduates, and here I am my second year in college um, and that's how I started uh, graphic design um, so it was always a very strange um, identity that I had while I was there because I never quite belonged to one class like i I still had a lot of friends from architecture school who were sophomores at the time, but now I'm making new friends that are freshmen that are dealing with all the Issues of first year college students dealing with being away from home and you know adjusting to that whole thing, um, stuff that I had kind of gone through already and was done with it um, so i I kind of was bouncing between these two uh, years my whole time at Carnegie Mellon. The other thing about it was they wanted me to do the full four years, so I would have been there five years, first year being architecture school and then the next four being graphic design but I was able to uh, lobby. The, the staff to, to allow me to complete it in three years. Um, I basically did a whole presentation to the faculty where I put a, a grid up of all of the requirements needed for graduation. And then I put all of these tiles of all the classes that I would have. And I, and I gradually filled in the entire grid, showing them that I can in fact satisfy all that was necessary to graduate in the next three years. And, and I was able to do it. So I, I kind of had this claim to fame but I was like the first student there to finish the graphic design program in three years. Um, then in my third year there as a as a junior, uh, you do a uh, an independent study. And I was able to study with a uh, professor who had a love of film titles. And I had no idea what film titles were. I never really gave it a second's thought. Film title sequences uh, weren't like a... a a thing back then, you know, it wasn't something that was in the uh, vernacular as it is now. Um, Everybody's very well aware of film title sequences, but you know, in 1993, whenever it was, it wasn't really something you you heard of. Um, But I, I was working with this professor on some uh, some animation uh, projects and some what we call kinetic typography projects. And he had this incredible archive of film title sequences that he had been collecting uh, from the greats of the past like Saul Bass and all the Bond title sequences and To Kill a Mockingbird is a classic one, Um, all the Hitchcock ones, most of them from Saul Bass. Um, And then he had this, these were all on videotape back then, and then he had this uh, video of a company in New York called R. Greenberg Associates, which is also RGA for short, And our Greenberg associates, uh, he put the tape in and the first title sequence that showed was Superman from 1978. The first Superman with Christopher Reeve, Ronald Brando, Richard Donner, classic, incredible movie, still one of my all time favorite superhero films, still holds up, still totally holds up. And, uh, and, and anyone who disagrees with me, uh, come at me. Um, (laughs) but, uh, um. He showed me this tape of R. Greenberg titles, and it was Superman and Alien and Untouchables and all these incredible title sequences from the 80s and 90s. They pretty much did everything. And right then and there, it sort of hit me that, you know, I had this love of film. I had this love of animation, this love of graphic design and typography. And here's a a medium that combines all of those things uh, into one really, really specialized focus. And that's exactly what I wanted to pursue. So, uh, that was, uh, that was a real, you know, moment of insight for me and, and definitely led me, uh, post-graduation to where I, where I ended up, where I wanted to go.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: One thing I wonder, you had the awareness, uh, at the end of freshman year to, Realized that you didn't, you know, want to be an architect, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I, I know the the experience firsthand because I had a roommate who was an architecture major, and I remember once we were throwing around a tennis ball in the bedroom after he had finished his very complicated model, and he looked mm-hmm. at me and another friend, and he said, "If anything happens to that thing, you should know I'm going to murder both of you," <laughs> and we both looked at him and was like, "You know what?" I'm not I know he's not joking because I know how much time went into this. I was like, stop throwing the yeah. fucking tennis ball around now. <laughs> like, yeah Yeah, um, yeah. I mean he would literally go and spend the entire night in a studio and come back the next morning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It would uh, and you know, I think uh a lot of the 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 schools that, that are uh that are out there, they actually kind of allow for this attrition. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the freshman class is always like five times bigger than the senior class, like in terms of seats. So, you know, as a freshman architecture student, there were like 100 kids there. And by the fifth year, I think there's 20 or 30.
2: Hmm.
1: Like, that's it. So they, you know, they know that every year they're going to shed, whether it's by choice, but because someone like myself decided, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think I want to pursue this. Or um, as I had heard, you know, certain students were asked to leave. Yeah. You know, as part of the, you know, process. And I guess that's just kind of built into the cake. Um, and you know, it's, it's part of making sure that you're really, you're really committed to it. Uh, and this is really what you want. I mean, I still have such an incredible respect for architecture, for architects. I, I, I love it. I love looking at it. I love, you know, reading about it. I love going to see, you know, great examples of architecture in the world. Um, so that's always going to be with me. but. Um, it just wasn't. It wasn't for me, you know, yeah. as a career. Well,
2: why do you think that uh, you know so many people don't have the awareness to realize that until way later in life, and until they've basically done something like been an architect for twenty years, only to wake up one day and realize they hate being an architect? Whereas you were smart enough to recognize that as a freshman.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there were just a lot of things that I was looking around at at the time, and and you know, it was it was you know talking to me and like kill, kill, killing my uh my inner monologue you know and all these uh, seeds of doubt that that were 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 surrounding me like for for instance uh my professor and several professors were recent grads that couldn't get a job and came back to teach and i i think it was a bad job market back then i don't i wasn't too uh too honed in on uh you know the economy and market cycles as i am now But back then, you know, seeing like, wow, this guy's like a couple years older than me and he's teaching because he couldn't get a job. That's not a great sign. That's really not what I want to see, you know? Um, And the other thing that I realized later in life is how much of, you know, you, you have all of these classmates who seem to have everything together, who seem to know exactly what they want, who seem so sure of themselves. And you realize later they were all full of it, you know. <laughs> they really were, and like, but that created more doubt with me. Like, wow, why am I not like this? My my neighbor to the left or to the right, you know, what what's yeah. wrong with me? Like they they're they're so sure of it. They're so uh, committed to this. Uh, must be me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then you realize, you know, as as time goes on, and then wow, that guy like three years ago, he 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 transferred out. He's not even there anymore. Or, you know, when you follow. Your uh, your alumni news and you realize that, you know, so and so was in your architecture class and is now doing something that has nothing to do with architecture. Yeah. And it's like you, you just get you get kind of uh, all these signs, uh, you know, that if you start listening to them, they they really speak very loudly. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, one thing I wonder is uh, what influence this has had uh on you as a parent and uh, you know, I'm not sure how old your kids are, but how you think about, you know, both education and career advice for your own children based on the experience you had.
1: Uh you know, it's it's something I'm figuring out as we go as well. Um, my kids are pretty young, uh 10 and 12. Um but, you know, it's it's a constant uh question I have is like where where do you think uh where do you think they're going to end up? What do you think they're going to be? doing. I'm just trying, you know, as best I can to support, uh, things they enjoy doing and support their hobbies and, you know, see if there's some, some natural abilities and talents there that I can help, uh, you know, foster along. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely always, uh, trying to draw with both kids to see if there's a genetic factor there. I mean, that was a thing as a kid of, uh, of an artist and an art teacher. My dad mm-hmm. was an incredible artist. Like he, he painted, and drew and his stuff is, I, I have, I have actually a website of all of his paintings that he, that I got, he passed away four years ago. And, um, I put a website up of of all his watercolor paintings that he did later in life of, uh, a lot of them done in Coney Island of, uh, of, uh, people on the beach. Um, but you know, everybody used to tell me as a kid, like my, my grade school teachers, cause I was always the kid in the class that was drawing the posters and the and And everything for the classroom, and everybody would say it's genetic, it's genetic. you got it from your father, you know, and I never really I never really knew if that's true or not. I don't think anybody could be sure of that stuff um uh, you know for me, it was always just the genetic part was just having the passion and the desire to want to do something really well and putting the time in and the and the effort and the ten thousand hours or whatever into becoming good at something um mm-hmm. so I'm always trying to like put a pencil or a crayon in my kid's hand like let's draw i'll set up a bowl of fruit <laughs> let's draw still life or whatever um and uh you know sometimes it goes well sometimes not so well but i, I can't really force it it mm-hmm. just sort of has to happen naturally yeah. um but i'm not i'm not sure at this point where you know what uh what career path either one of them are going to take i mean they both have uh told me a lot of different things depending on the day <laughs> yeah it uh, sounds like a
2: 10 and 12 year old <laughs>
1: You know, a couple of years ago, my son wanted to be a WWE wrestler. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, who knows? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I wanted to be Superman at one point and into yeah. an airline pilot at another. So exactly. One last uh, thing before we actually start getting into, um, you know, the Marvel piece and title sequences sure. and that creative process, J- just from everything you've said so far, it seems like your father had a really profound influence on your life. And um, I wonder what was one of the most important things that he taught you about life or careers, um, whether it be in the arts or just in general?
1: Um, I think it, it's going to go back to uh, living, living with regret. And not taking the the, the risks that he wish, wishes he took, um, you know, I think that's something that played a big part for me in starting my own business because I know that's something that he always talked about. And he actually used to tell me that I should take some business classes that I might want to start something of my own one day. This was in like high school, and then eventually when I got to college. So you know, I think he 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 definitely had a had an influence with that. You know, just seeing that you know, he always aspired that to, to to do more than than just being the teacher that he was, and being more successful. You know, having the things that other people had that he never really got, and he always kind of felt a little bit inferior from that stuff. I mean, it's it's ridiculous for me to say this, Um, but it definitely was something that you know i i i, I heard a lot of growing up. Uh-huh. Um, so. I think all those things just just play a role, whether it's uh, subconsciously or directly. Um, You know, I definitely, I definitely think that helped kind of push and and pull me in in certain directions.
2: Yeah. You you started a creative career that predates sort of the internet, social media. uh, And I I wonder what you've seen change, not in terms of, of technology and what we're capable of, but in terms of the work ethic of artists, because I feel like, there's a sort of shortcut to attention that makes people believe that the work is not necessary.
1: Just as far as the create the creative process?
2: Yeah. I mean, particularly because of social media, right? Like you can sort of shortcut your way to this idea mm-hmm. and confuse attention with accomplishment.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, just as far as process goes, I, I for me, it's always about pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's definitely a lot of shortcuts that you can take just by jumping on a computer. um, using filters, using, uh, you know, stuff you find on Google, um, and just starting to put up something together, you know, really fast and without, without too much thought, um, you know, it was was always part of my process to, to not even go near a computer until you have the idea, you know, kind of fully sketched out, fully uh, framed out. Um, I also used to love going to bookstores, uh, when they existed in the big cities you know, we used to have Barnes and Nobles on every corner. And when we started Perception, my uh, business partner and I, the first thing we'd do when we got a pitch or a project is we'd go to the Barnes and Noble like a block away, and get just uh, dozens of books, just stack them up and sit on the floor and just go through books and sketch and just to get inspiration and ideas from the real world. Um, in college, for me, it was always the library. There was an amazing library at Carnegie Mellon. And I, I would go there. It would be like the first stop after you got a project assignment. Go to the library, spend a whole afternoon there researching, Xeroxing things out of books. You know, we didn't have iPhones to take pictures or anything like that. It was just Xeroxing, uh, taking notes. So it was just a lot about uh, doing things by hand and doing things away from the computer um, that, you know, I can't say is completely gone, but I, I definitely don't, you know, see as much of it as, as I used to, you know, when I was doing it. Um. Yeah. So I think that's definitely a big change with, uh, with technology. I mean, now the, the stuff that you can do with apps and filters, it's just mind blowing. Um, you know, stuff that is almost automated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me, yeah. you know, the stuff that would take us hours or days to accomplish, you know, an app <laughs> will do for you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I I remember. I think it used to take about a hundred hours to build a really basic website when I was in college, and that wasn't that yeah. long ago. And yeah. now you can build it in ten minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, some of that stuff is awesome. It's like I yeah. the Shopify stuff. Just put a put a merchant a, a site up in in in, a, in an afternoon. It's mm-hmm. great.
2: Yeah. I think I'm not surprised that you mentioned the role of analog, because there's this really great story. uh, in you may have read uh, Gar Reynolds' book, Presentation Zen, which is all about slide design. And I've mentioned this before, but uh, there's this great section where he talks he he writes about uh you know working at apple i think he was on the product evangelist team and he said he walks into a designer's office and he had a macbook on a, or imac on his desk that hadn't been turned on in weeks he went mm. there thinking they were going to have a presentation and the guy just handed him a bunch of pieces of paper and yeah. that's when he realized that even to do slide design he never does anything on a computer until exactly what you're talking about until he sketched everything out and mm. i've noticed even as a writer when you write by hand it mm. fundamentally changes the way you write. Like it, one, you're forced to be much more concise with your language. You're also much more thoughtful because you can't just fly through whatever you're writing. So mm-hmm. I, I remember I, I basically did this exercise, was like, let me rewrite this article. And I thought, wait a minute, I just said in one sentence when I wrote by hand what I was able, I said by three when I wrote on a computer.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's so true. And I think that you, when you're on a computer, there, there's also so much temptation to, uh, to bounce around and and look at other things, you know, and when you're just hunched over a pad or, or pieces of paper or books, like that's it, that's nothing else you could possibly divert your attention to. Whereas you're on a computer, oh, I got this window open and this person is chatting me and you know what I mean? You got an Hmm. email popping up. There's just too much, there's too much there. And the, the level of focus is, uh, is totally different.
2: well let's talk about the the creative process of these title sequences because i mean the marvel title sequences are insane i mean i've seen them they're a whole other level of of title sequence compared to what you see and yeah they really are so what actually goes into them because they're almost every one of them is unforgettable every time i see them I'm like yeah if i had a conference this is how i would start it
1: yeah uh there's a lot that goes into them um they're they're First of all, I should just start off by saying, you know, it's it's a dream come true that uh, that we've gotten to work on so many of them. Um, The first one we did ever was uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. That was the first film title sequence. But go back earlier than that, and we actually, our very first opportunity to work on a Marvel title sequence came with their animated DVDs. Uh, They used to release these, you know, feature length animated films on DVD, and they had title sequences with those. And we did three of them, uh, Hulk versus Wolverine, uh, Tales of Asgard, and Planet Hulk. They might all be on Disney+, Plus. I'm not sure, but um, those were kind of our, our audition uh, for Marvel. We did those, they, they, they uh, predate anything else that we've done. And uh, we had very little time to do them and very little budget, um, but we, we took them so, so seriously and we put our heart and souls into them. And uh, they, they all came out really, really well um but just speaking in general of uh, when we're doing a title sequence you know first and foremost is hopefully we get to see some some version of the film uh mm-hmm. in some form some edit of of it uh sometimes it's in a more uh finished form and sometimes it's in a very very rough form um but it's all about watching the film and really getting into the story and really un- understanding all the story beats and all of the characters uh, all the important moments in the film, because a lot of times the title sequences that we do uh, need to echo those exact story beats or those moments uh, that we just saw in the film. We want to we want to either honor in the title sequence or, or kind of echo them in some clever way. Um, we also do a lot of stuff, uh, you know, by storyboard. We'll actually map out a title sequence with, uh, you know, again, pencil and paper. Um, and just literally like plot it out, uh, uh, as almost like a comic book with different panels showing the different moments of the sequence. You know, a lot of things that we, we do too, is create like more than we actually need. So let's say there's 35 different title cards in a sequence, you know, 35 different credits, give or take, we might come up with 50 vignettes, 50 moments, 50, you know, title sequence moments that we think are clever or, or memorable or we'll have some kind of interesting visual impact and we'll sort of put all those in front of the Marvel team and then kind of pick out our favorites, pick out the ones that sort of match the name that it's going with, right? You know, certain certain of these uh, story beats and these vignettes actually go really well with uh, the director or with the cinematographer or with the lead actor or actress, writer, what have you. Um, So that's a a big part of the process is kind of figuring out, you know, what that what that uh, mix and match uh, looks like. Another really important thing is the music. Music is, uh, you know, the the emotion behind it all, the driving force. A lot of times directors will have a track. I think, you know, with Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, one of my favorites, we got the track before we even started designing anything. So we knew it was going to that that music. So we wanted to design to that with that in mind. You know Black Panther, we found out kind of early in the process about the Kendrick Lamar track, but once we did we had a you know blast just refining everything to work really well with that music um, then other times they don't have a track in mind, and we might even propose a track so take Black Widow for example, uh, which is an opening title, one of the very few um, that are in any of the MCU movies um, and we we actually suggested the temp track uh. Smells Like Teen Spirit, that really interesting cover of it. And they ultimately loved it. And once they saw, you know, all the work in progress with that music so many times, it kind of became married to it. It's like, all right, well, we got to get this track. And uh, and they got the, the rights and the license to use it. And that's what's in the movie. So that track is uh, is something that our team uh, proposed. And it went really, you know, went over really well. Um, yeah, there's just, you know, every every one of these has a little bit of a different process. Some we have a little bit more time to accomplish than others. Uh, some is 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 a complete fire, fire drill. You know, we have to really get this done really quick. Others, we have more time to tweak it. Um, some are more three-dimensionally heavy. Others are more two-dimensional. Some are more handmade. Like, again, Homecoming had a lot of stuff where we built things by hand, whether it was the magic marker or the clay or all the little sketchy pops that we made throughout it. And then something like Avengers age of Ultron was a complete photo, real 3d extravaganza of a sculpture of the, you know, um, uh, of the Avengers world's greatest heroes. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into each of these creative solutions. Um, so no two are quite the same. Yeah.
2: What combination of, of skill sets are involved in this? I imagine that it's not just you and one partner doing all this, right?
1: No, not at all. It's it's uh, it's an amazing team. Uh, it's an amazing team. You have, like Be- Ocean's creative. Eleven of?
2: The, the, Sorry? The, are you basically like an Ocean's Eleven type team of people who all do you know various things really well?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think you know everybody has uh, has an amazing you know set of skills, and then like uh, as a, as a team, it's like unstoppable. Every, everybody brings something unique uh, to the group. And then together they kind of amplify each other's skills. Um, but I, you know, occasionally we do have to bring in some very specific skill sets to help amplify what we have because there's something specific or unique in what we're trying to accomplish, um, that we might not possess ourselves. So we'll bring in help as necessary. Mm. Um, but at our core, you know, we're, we're an incredibly talented group.
2: Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you figure out things like typography and, and visuals and, and select? I mean, is it just a, a constant testing? Is it basically multiple iterations of, of what, you know, before what, you know, we end up seeing on the screen? Because now I actually want to go back and see all these title sequences after our conversation. Yeah.
1: I mean, a lot of iterations. Yeah, it's, there's definitely, you know, there's a lot of iterations involved. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of, um, uh, put, put a bunch of different looks in front of the Marvel team and, and get a reaction from them. Uh, you know what they usually say is give us a wedge—that's their term—give us a wedge of of type choices. So we'll you know we'll take a uh, a title card and then set it like twenty different ways and see what they react best to, what's most legible, what works well within the composition uh, of the frame, maybe something that has uh, something unique or or uh, special about it that's um, appropriate to the movie and to the tone that we're trying to do. Um, so yeah, that all goes into it.
2: Um, one thing, this is a weird question, but, um, how does typography impact, uh, emotion like the emotion that I feel when I'm seeing a title screen?
1: Um, I I guess it's just the, the, way it's, the way it's set, uh, the choice of, of typography that, that is made, um, making sure that again, it's just sort of evoking the right, the right tone. Uh, is it quiet? Is it loud? Is it romantic? Is it classic? Uh, you know, is it cold? Is it warm? You know, all of these types of, uh, of of feelings and moods can be evoked from the the right selection of, uh, of typography. Um, yeah. You know, and and figuring out the right balance um, of the of the letters to what, whatever else is on the screen. You know, to go along with it and making sure that everything is. Is complementing each other, um, and one isn't um, distracting from from the other. Uh, you know, sometimes the typography is really, really well integrated into whatever the scene is. Like, it's literally a part of the scene, so it might have some depth or dimension um, because it's mapped onto a surface. Uh, and then other times, it's very clearly in front of everything else. You know, it's just sort of uh, sits in a, in a in a plane, all all unto itself. Um, you know, so all these things go into the, the creative choices that are made.
2: Yeah. How do you, how do you keep uh, staying innovative when you've, you know, done one superhero movie after another, you know, without sort of, I mean, obviously you have different characters, but still I'd imagine that that's got to be a challenge.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's always a challenge. You know, it, it's always uh the fun part of it too, is trying to figure out what's unique about this film that we can really play off of. Is there a an idea here that hasn't been done before that we can really try to explore. And, you know, I like to say, get ourselves into a little bit of trouble with, you know, make ourselves sweat a little bit, try something new, technically, try something new creatively that then we have to figure out. Um, because it's in those types of projects and those types of moments that we grow and we learn, you know, we never want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. This just get stale kind of plateau. So we're always looking to push the boundaries and it's really easy with Marvel because they're doing the same thing with their films. I mean, every one of their films is ups the ante so much, whether, you know, it's with the the, the, the visual effects, the scenes that they're doing, the action sequences, uh, the powers of these characters. It's, it's always uh, it consistently just keeps going higher and higher. So, you know, for us, it's it's kind of just, just complimenting that and playing off of that and making sure that we're doing all that justice.
2: Yeah. Uh, How do other people bring that into their own creative process? Because one common thing that I have found when I've talked to, you know, readers of our our newsletter and, you know, through survey data is a sort of lack of creative confidence. People are so afraid of, it's funny because they think it's fear of failing, but it, you know, fear of failing turns into fear of trying at all. And of course, nobody wants to admit that, by the way, the first time you do anything, it's going to suck. Yeah.
1: Sorry. What was the question?
2: How do how do other people bring that sense of creative confidence to push the boundaries the way you're talking about into their own work?
1: It's uh, a good question. Uh, I think you just gotta you just gotta keep keep trying new things, and you know if you have the if you have the ambition to want to be great and to want to continue to grow, then it really should be a natural thing. Uh, you should want to continue to to try to challenge yourself uh you know we we have a saying a perception uh be comfortable being uncomfortable um you know and that is to say that we want you to keep pushing your own limits we want you to keep pushing what the limits of what you think you can do and what you know how to do because it's uh it's when you challenge yourself that you learn and you and you develop as a designer and as a creative um and uh you know as a company we grow with you like that's the whole reason we've been around 20 years is that the the team continues to grow and the team continues to expand and, and in their abilities and what they can do. And that just makes the whole company advance together. Yeah. So
2: what has been your personal favorite of all the title sequences that you've done? Or is that um, like asking you to choose which favorite, which of your children is your favorite?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, they they all definitely have something, you know, special about them. They all have something unique and there's, a, you know, I also associate each one with like a moment in my life mm. and that for, you know, for some of the, for some of those moments, they just really stand out. So, you know, right off the bat, Avengers Age of Ultron for me was, was a highlight because it was the first one we've ever done. Um, and that sort of was a dream come true. It took, I don't know, seven, eight years uh, of trying to uh, get Marvel's attention Like I didn't even tell you how we started working with Marvel. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, actually, Um, I'd love to hear that (laughs) if you have the time. So yeah, yeah. Um, so rewind. Uh, We started Perception in two thousand one, so that's twenty years ago. And uh, I mentioned early in the conversation how much I love Marvel. Growing up, I was a Hulk fanatic and Marvel comics uh, fanatic. Um, And in two thousand one, we started Perception. We broke away. My first job was at R. Greenberg, RGA. The company i mentioned earlier that did superman i ended up working for them um i worked for them for five and a half years met my business partner danny gonzalez who we found a perception together um and when we founded it you know one of the early goals was to get back into film titles uh, that i had been working on at rga but if you look at the um the marvel uh cinematic uh timeline you realize that 2000 was the first big real serious marvel movie it was x-men came out in 2000. I mean you can go back to Blade in the late 90s, also a good movie. But X-Men was the first time that you know we saw really you know incredible actors Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, Bryan Singer directed it, like this is the Marvel movie that Marvel fans were were craving, you know, their whole lives. And then in 02 was the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire and Spider-Man 2 and X-Men 2 were in pre-production. But the other movie that was in pre-production right when we were really getting perception off the ground was the Hulk. And it was Ang Lee's Hulk with uh, Eric Banner. Now, looking back, it was a horrible movie. I'm not a fan. <laughs> what they did to my character is, is heresy. Um, but I didn't know that when I heard that this movie was in pre-production. All I knew is I got to get involved. We got to do the titles for this movie. I mean, not only do I want to do title sequences, but imagine if we could do the title sequence for the Hulk movie. So all of a sudden, like the fire was lit. I had to, figure out how are we going to get, you know, the attention of, of this team of how are we going to get into Marvel? How are we going to, you know, figure out, you know, who to talk to, who's the right, you know, person. So it just basically started, uh, a a multi-year crusade to figure out how to get the attention of Marvel. And that took us down many paths, a lot of, uh, dead ends, um, many dead ends, a lot of, uh, rejections and, you know unanswered emails and phone calls, but ultimately, uh, it, it was uh in 2000, I think it was eight, 2008 or not. Yeah, I think it was 2008. I um, I, I never go to uh college alumni events, and I'm sure uh, you get invited to your college alumni events too. But you know, being in New York, I'd always get these invitations uh, for CMU alumni events, but there was one particular invitation that I got back then where an alumni named Ken West was speaking. And it said, Ken West is the CFO of Marvel. And this is before Marvel was bought by Disney. Marvel was a hundred people. All right. I think Iron Man had come out and that was it. And basically he was speaking uh, on this particular night at the Carnegie Mellon, New York city alumni evening or whatever. So I said, I guess I'm going to this one. So I went to that i met ken um we we, sh- we hit it off we had a great conversation uh he came to visit perception like a couple days later with some of his marvel colleagues and then uh he actually send uh sent an introductory email uh for me to uh, kevin feige who of course is the president of marvel studios and uh you know a visionary um and that led to uh going out to california Uh, having a couple of meetings uh we actually showed some ideas for uh some of the the films that they were coming out with just on our own just put together some some sketches because we were so excited about uh what they were doing showed them the passion that we had for the characters and uh you know at the time all the work that perception had been doing was for television we we had no film work really to speak of um we had a a great portfolio, a growing portfolio of broadcast work for big networks like HBO and ESPN, did a lot of work with ad agencies doing commercial graphics and animation, but you know, no film, none. So we got a call when they were shooting Iron Man 2 in 2009. Um, one of the uh, producers on it, a uh, guy, Jeremy Latcham, who we had met in person at one of those earlier meetings, remembered us. And remembered, you know, we did some great stuff for television, some great broadcast design. And they needed an animation for Iron Man 2 of the Stark Expo logo. It's the opening scene of the film where Tony lands on stage and he, he he throws off the Iron Man suit. And he says, welcome to the Stark Expo. And there's a huge screen behind him playing this animation of the Stark Expo. It's a logo sequence. And they asked us, can we animate, can we create and animate this they need it in a week. They're actually shooting it on set. It's going to be live, you know, projected behind Robert Downey Jr. And they thought of us because we, had, hey, we had a lot of animation and logos on our reel. They thought it was something we could do. Of course. I mean, are you kidding me? I jumped through the phone to say we we could do it, and we did it. Uh, it went very well. Um, we had a, a million ideas that we had shown them. You know, when we were first doing our first presentation, it was literally like you know the presentation we were waiting our whole lives for. Uh, and one of the designs that we had shown, uh, they pointed to on this call and they said, wow, that would be a cool design for Tony's glass phone. What, 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 Tony's glass phone. What, what did it, you know, it was one of those things we weren't really meant to hear that, but we, we heard it and it definitely, uh, we filed it in the back of our minds. So after we delivered the, uh, Stark Expo logo animation, which we did in about a week or two because they needed it that quickly. And Marvel was very thankful and said, you know, we'll call you if we need you. Uh, I thought, you know, this can't be it. This can't be it. We've waited our, all these years to get an opportunity to Marvel and that's it. And 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 we we just decided we got to do something to keep, uh, keep them coming back. So we decided to take the design they mentioned would be cool for his glass phone. And we actually built a glass phone animation, which you could see on our website, um, And just in a weekend, we bought a piece of plexiglass at Home Depot, put together this motion test of what his phone could be, sent it off on a Monday, and I said to the team, get ready. Marvel's going to call us back as soon as I hit send on this email, and we'll be off to the races. And I hit send on the email with this incredible motion test, and uh, the phone never rang, and I never got a response, and days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. And I was very dejected and, and all hope had been lost. Uh, and then one morning I woke up uh, with an email from the producer with uh, some secret access code to look at some footage and look at some uh, uh, scenes in the mo- in the movie that they wanted us to bid on, to put a uh, you know quote together to do. And within those scenes was actually the scenes of Tony's phone. They really loved the test. It just took them a long time to get to it. They're very busy, obviously. So what, led, what, what what that then led to was over 120 shots in Iron Man 2, uh, which was not the titles, actually. All we did, not all we did, but we did a lot of the, the tech work uh, of Tony Stark. So it was his phone, his smart mirror, his, he had a coffee table that he looks up Black Widow on. Um, he had you know windows throughout his house that were projecting uh, television feeds. So we really did a lot of the technology and the gadgetry. We did a lot of work on the holograms, too, for Jarvis um, around Tony Stark. And, uh, you know, it was it was an amazing project. It it changed our lives in so many ways. You know, it it really opened up the relationship uh, with Marvel Studios that we maintain to this day. But the other incredible thing that happened after that movie was the technology world came calling. So we did all this work thinking this is just a you know another design challenge how do we solve a, a, a phone graphics for Tony Stark and then a week later Microsoft is calling us saying they love our interface design they love our cinematic use of user experience design Would we be interested in collaborating on on a real piece of technology and one by one we started getting opportunities in the tech world so over you know a several months and years of that happening we really refocused and cemented our position and our story as designing for both film and technology science wow. fiction and science fact and it's this really awesome yin and yang where they both feed so well into each other you know the more we work in, on real tech projects with real tech clients the more we're able to inform the technology that we design in marvel movies whether it's tony stark or the tech that we designed for Wakanda or the tech that we do for Black Widow or Spider-Man or so many other films that we, we design technology for. Okay. And then the, the tech companies that we work with love that we're working on the movies because they want the team that's conceptualizing the future tech for Wakanda and Tony Stark to, to, to bring that thinking and that vision into their product, their real-world application. And their, you know, next gen user experience design. So it's become mm. a really uh a really unique story that we've uh, we've carved out for ourselves.
2: Yeah, you know, th- there's so many random questions come to us. this, well, this sure. is like a bizarre, morbid curiosity question. So if you've like tried to set up your own house like Tony Tony Stark <laughs> <laughs> I mean I would if I had these skill sets, I'd be like, Oh, I wonder if I could replicate this in my own house.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh It's, it was, uh, it was an amazing, you know, learning experience for us. And, you know, one, one of the fun, funny things is that a lot of tech clients, you know, for a long time after that said they, they, they were coming to perception because they wanted something that felt Tony Stark. They wanted something that felt Iron Man. And, you know, we kind of got what that meant. We, we sort of became like the brand ambassadors for Stark tech, if you will. But you know, what works in movies doesn't necessarily work in real life. And, you know, even if you had this tech, it would be pretty exhausting. To be, you know, moving your arms around in the air all day. Yeah. Uh, You know, it looks really cool when Robert Downey's doing it and he's, you know, incredible actor. Uh, And, and, and the way that we design those holograms is very artistic, very impressionistic. They wanted it to feel, you know, like it was his imagination unleashed, that he's the modern day digital Da Vinci. So, you know, we created all that, but yeah, it's not really practical.
2: How, Um, How far off are we from any of this stuff being like practical application in the real world?
1: Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we got to do in that movie has already come to fruition. The smart mirror, you know, there's plenty of mirrors now for the health and fitness market and, and other applications that we're we're all too familiar with. Um, same thing with the smart table that he was using. Um, you know, the holograms, I've seen a lot of different uh, companies attempt to do some holographic stuff. Of course, nothing quite looks the same as Jarvis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, I'm talking to you through these AirPods and I'm thinking about the Avengers when they all have like something in their ear that they're communicating with each other on. Yeah, you know, I mean I, I got an Oculus back then.
2: I got an Oculus that? recently. I got an Oculus headset about two months back, and I'm blown away by what's possible inside of it.
1: Wow. Yeah, I haven't yeah. gotten haven't gotten one yet, but I'm I'm excited to try it out.
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. There's the, the possibilities are endless because you're no longer constrained by the limitations of physical reality.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the the, the, the age old story of science fiction, inspiring science fact, you know, that used to be so true with books, you know, inspiring inventors, whether it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, by Jules Verne, inspiring, you know, the submarine and H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, inspiring the inventor of the rocket ship, you know, now is really film, film and, and games and just, you know, entertainment um, in general has uh, has kind of, filled in a lot of that, uh, place for inspiration. You know, so many of the technology companies that we meet with and we visit and we talk to, they, we've literally heard it, uh, dozens of times that our work inspires them that, that, you know, they, they watch these movies, they get ideas, they, uh, they look up to it. You know, it's, uh, it's wow. really, it's, it's fascinating. Hmm. So well-
2: Two final questions for you. I mean, it sounds like you had quite a long journey to getting to this point in that time, you know, while you're waiting for Marvel to, you know, reply to these emails and do you ever feel like you wanted to give up?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's all, it it depends on the day, you know, some days you do and some days you, you kind of, you, you recharge and uh, you, you go back at it. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's natural. Um, you know, but I, I never, you know, obviously never did. Um, so those thoughts are quickly cast aside. Um, and, uh, and, and I take another, I I take another angle at it, or I, I try another direction or, you know, there's, there's always, uh, there's always something else you can do. Um, and you know, you can't ever say I tried everything, you know, at least I haven't felt that way. I always felt like there's, there's more that can be done or, there's something else you can try or some clever approach. Um, Like I said, we had even created some materials on our own to show them that they didn't ask us to see uh, just because, you know, coming from the world of, of, uh, of advertising and broadcast design, a lot of times um, when we were uh, pitching stuff, we had to, we had to sort of like, bring stuff that they weren't even expecting to see to get the job. Like we just, you just had to go uh, to another level um, to show a client that you, you know, their brand and you understand their brand and like you're, you're living and breathing their brand. And those are oftentimes the, the the design studios that get, that get awarded projects because they just show that level of commitment and immersion in the, in what they're presenting. So, Mm. you know, we did that a lot with Marvel too.
2: Yeah. Wow, um, well, this has been amazing. I have one final question for you, which I know you've probably that heard me quick. ask before um yeah, <laughs> it really did <laughs> uh what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable
1: um I think you know it's it's really when someone's work or is it, just unique and special it's one of a kind um it's it's recognizable uh you know where uh there's there's no question who did it uh it's, it's definitely, you know, this person or this team that definitely becomes, uh, uh, unmistakably theirs. Um, I also think, you know, something that we strive to do as, as we matured as a business and, you know, believe me, I, I made every mistake in the book and I learned a lot of this stuff the hard way is part of, you know, of, uh, of achieving a level of success as a design studio is figuring out, you know, what makes you unique and what makes you special and what makes you different than the thousands of other talented design studios out there. And part of that is figuring out what you're an expert in and what can be your special niche that no one else uh, can claim. And, you know, for us, it took a very long time and it, and it happened organically. It didn't, I didn't, you know, my partner, Danny, like wake up one day and at the beginning and say, all right, we're going to design for Marvel movies and technology companies. You know, that 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 just sort of happened. And then once it happened, we we saw it, we recognized it. We fine tuned the story. We figured out what what is the best way to tell that story. Uh, and then we continue to refine it You know, constantly. We're always trying different ways or better ways to present that and tell that story. Um, but it, it became, it was very important to, to figure out what makes you, what makes you unmistakable, what makes you special and what makes you stand apart.
2: Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you? I mean, obviously they can go watch a bunch of Marvel movies, but where can (laughs) they find out specifically about you
1: and your work? Uh, experienceperception.com. Uh, is the website. We have a YouTube channel. We have Instagram. We're on Twitter, Facebook, all the, uh, all the social platforms and uh, look forward to hearing from you out there.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show
0: with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?